Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Good morning. For some reason, they've started leaving the lights on during that uh, video, and so I get to look at everyone in the eyes as I walk up now, instead of secretly in the night. But um, anyway, my name is Andrew Riley. I am the college pastor here at the chapel, and I want to say welcome. Uh, I am super excited as a college pastor because starting this week, everything is ramping up again. Um, so we have uh, five new staff members stepping on this year. They start tomorrow. Um, and then the week after that, our leaders come in and we train our leaders. And then the week after that is welcome week. So all of the college freshmen are on campus. And um, that first month of reaching college students and finding them and befriending them and inviting them into community is the most important month of uh, college ministry um, because of statistically if they don't get involved in the first month they won't until they have kids again which is kind of crazy uh, and so it's important for us to man um, to labor hard to reach this campus for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ and that's our hope and then the week after that we start our very first week of refuge program so for the next month everything is crazy for us and so your prayers are much appreciated, so please do that. Um, but as we continue in our Psalm series, I had the opportunity to do Psalm uh, chapter 119. Um, uh, Aaron said something about it being a long Psalm. I don't, I don't think so. I was able to fit it all in one slide up here. So we're just gonna read it. And um, would you guys uh, stand together for the reading of the word? No, just kidding. <laughs> That's a joke, don't do that. Um, that would be really, really long time. I did think about taking the week off and I was like, I could just read this thing. And then, well, all right, see you later. Time for Piccadilly, lunch and whatnot. Um, but no, we're actually going to look at it. Uh, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It has 176 verses. There are a lot of them. And uh, one of my favorite stories that I saw when I was studying the Psalm was that there was this guy, he was a Scotsman in the 17th century. He was a Christian. Um, who was being persecuted for his faith. His name was George uh, Weishart. And uh, being persecuted for his faith. And on the scaffold, there was a rite that you could take part in where you sing one last song. And he said, all right, I want to I sing Psalm 119. And uh, so sure enough, he starts singing it. And by two-thirds of the way through, there was someone who showed up with an official pardon on his life and he didn't die. And so I just think, what if it was Psalm 1 that only had six verses, like, oh man. So you could say that Psalm 119 saved this man's life and it can save your life too. Let's dive in. <laughs> that was pretty corny. Um, I, that's not in my notes either. Um, a few things you need to know about Psalm 119 before we get started. It's extremely interesting and it has been the subject of a lot of people's and theologians' attention uh, over the last few millennia um, because it's the longest and also it is an acrostic excuse me it's an acrostic if you don't know what acrostic is it's when you take the letters of the alphabet and order them and arrange them in some unique pattern or way and so when you look at psalm 119 it takes it has 22 sections for the 22 letters in the alphabet of hebrew and so it takes each section takes that letter, and then has eight verses that start with that letter. So most of your Bibles will probably have that. It'll say Aleph for the first one, and then continue on all the way down with 22 different Hebrew letters. Um, and so we don't see this anywhere else in the Bible. The only thing that comes close is in the book of Lamentations, which is also an acrostic, but it is not near the extent of this one. We don't know who the author was, but whoever it was, this was not, this was not, I'm, I'm in a cave and I'm crying out to the Lord type of writing. This was not, I'm going to sit here and write a song this afternoon. This is something that probably took this man years to come up with. A long time, extreme attention to detail. Some people say it's repetitive, but when you start to study it and see the small variations and these different words that he uses for different reasons and purposes, you begin to see that this thing really is incredible. And so what is it about? If it's something that's so unique, if it's the longest, something that took years for this person to make, what is it about? It is all about God's word. It's all about God's word. Here at the chapel, um, we have, um, man, a mission statement. We have five values that we really care about. And one of them is biblical truth, which is 
right there. Uh, we trust God's word to be sufficient and relevant to direct everything that we do. Everything we do here, we keep in the confines of the Bible. Everything we choose to do, we measure up against the Bible. That's, that's what we do. We care about it. We believe this is God's word to us. We believe there is a God. He has revealed himself to us and that the Bible is one of his ways that he has revealed himself to us. And so we can know who he is, what our purpose is, and what our mission is. And we can know those things in God's word. So we care a lot about biblical truth. The author of Psalm 119 cared a whole lot about God's written and spoken word. So much so that of the 176 verses, 171 of them mention the word of God in some way, either in written form or spoken form. It talks about his statutes, his precepts, his judgments, his law, his word, his testimony. It talks about God's word in all of these different ways, but it refers to it in 171 of the 176 verses. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. And so in other words, it's important. The dedication, the time, the detail, all shows us that when thinking about God's written and spoken word to us as humans, it's important. And so Psalm 119 is absolutely massive. There is no way to get through all of it. This is a whole like year series at some churches. Um, there are people that have dedicated their entire life's work to Psalm 119. Um, there's one person who wrote a book that has, it, it has like, what is it, 147 chapters. I'm like, that's more chapters than there are verses, but whatever. Who's counting? No one's counting. It's real important. But what we're going to do is we're going to walk through it in a, a certain specific way. So if you have your outline, it's going to help you. Um, but we're going to talk about it in three ways. First, what the Bible is. What does the psalmist write about what the Bible is? The second one is what the Bible does in relation to us as humans. What does it do? for us or to us or show us. And the last one is, what must we do with the Bible? What must we do with the Bible? And so the first one, what the Bible is. There are eight descriptions of what the Bible is. We're gonna go over three of them, because I don't have time. And I definitely went way over last service, but who's paying attention to that? It says this, these are uh, the eight descriptions of what the Bible is in Psalm 119. It is a guard. It is a treasure, it is a companion, it is a song to sing, it is honey to my lips, it is a lamp, it is a great spoil, and it is a heritage. And I can only go over three of them. So the first one is going to be a guard. The Bible, God's spoken and written word is a guard. Even though when the psalmist wrote this, they only had access to many of the Old Testament Books, what we know now through the life of Jesus, the writings of the disciples in, in Paul and the testimony of what happened in Jesus' life, we are now able to look back and we see that this applies to all of God's written and spoken word. And that includes the New Testament now. It definitely by principle applies to the entire Bible that you have in front of you. But the first one is a guard, a guard. Starting in verse nine, how can a young person stay on the path to purity? So when you're trying to stay on a path, what keeps you from going off the path? A guard. How can we stay on the path? By living according to your word. The word will keep you on the path. It is a guard to stop you from getting off the path. Verse 10, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we see that the Bible is something that helps us not to stray off the path. It keeps us on the path that God has for us. I want to show you all a picture here. It's a wonderful picture. Uh, here it is, beautiful sunrise or set, one of those things. The colors, the mountains, the scenery. I mean, it's all just glorious, right? And then you have this, this guardrail. Nope, 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 not that one. Go back. Yep, there it is. All right, you have this guardrail, right? Um, and so here's what I like to point out about this. If you fall off that, you're going to die, right? Death will happen. Um, but you're not thinking about that. You're thinking about the scenery. It looks good. And there's at least something there stopping you from falling to your death. Um, you already saw the next, next picture. This picture is a picture of a hard scrabble pass in South Central uh, Colorado. This is something that I had to drive on a lot 
as I worked at a camp in the middle of Colorado. I don't, I don't know how I found it or how I got there, but I did. It was a great time, great year, but I had to drive on this. Otherwise, I'd have to go around all the way through Pueblo and it took me an extra hour. So I got to do that thing. Hard Scrabble Pass. And uh, there was one time I was driving on this during a blizzard and I'm from South Louisiana. I don't know what that means. Lots of snow on the ground. I know snow is slippery. So I am going to go really slow. I'm going five miles an hour, you know, taking my time. And I've got it in first gear. I'm like, I'm not going anywhere quickly. Um, and it still wasn't enough. It still wasn't enough. So there was a point, it might've been this turn. I don't know which one it was, uh, but it said 8% grade, 8% grade, which is a lot, believe it or not. And so I'm on it, it's 8% grade down. And all of a sudden, even going five miles an hour, I'm trying to slow down to go to the curve and my tires start slipping. There's no guardrail. And I know that I'm thinking death. Death is going to happen. I unbuckled my seatbelt. I'm open. I opened my door, my hand on the wheel, one on the brake, and I'm just praying I don't have to jump out of this car because I am ready to jump out. I mean, it is a slow, like, uh, am I going to die or not? Like, I'm not sure. And um, luckily, my tires eventually caught and I stopped probably about, I don't know, 15 feet away from the edge, um, which there's not much of an edge here to begin with, but about 15 feet away from it. And um, you better believe in that moment, I was wishing for a guardrail. I wish there was something there that would save my life if I was about to die just now. This would be fantastic. And so what we see the Bible offers us, what God's word offers us is the first picture. Go back to the first picture. The scenery in both is gorgeous, right? In both of them, I'd love to see it. I'd love to be a part of it. I'd love to drive around it. And the other picture, the aspen trees are beautiful, gorgeous. You go during the fall through Colorado, the aspen trees changing colors is beautiful. It's like a rainbow. But in one of these pictures, I'm able to focus on the, series, uh, the scenery and have the freedom to enjoy creation, everything that's before me. But in this other picture, I don't have the freedom to enjoy the scenery, do I? The aspen trees. That's probably not what many of you noticed. What you noticed was the instant death that's probably gonna happen. And so this is what the Bible shows us. This is what the Bible is, what God's word is for us. It keeps us on the right path and it protects us from going a little bit too close to the scenery because scenery looks good, doesn't it? Looks real good. And many of us are like, let me get as close to it as possible. God's word is a guardrail that stops us from getting a little bit too close to the scenery. It stops us, it keeps us on the path that God has for us. And I, uh, the verse I went over specifically, it talks about young people, right? Verse nine, how can a young person stay on the path? Why is it specifically addressing young people? Because as a father, man, you know, young people do not care about guardrails. Guardrails are things to climb on. That is what they are. They do not exist for any purpose than for your enjoyment <laughs> as a child. Um, one of my favorite Proverbs is that the glory of a young man is their strength. And then it says the glory of an old man is their gray hair, um, which goes to show you young people, what do they think, right? I can do what I want. I'll change in the future. Someone else is going to get burned. I'm not going to get burned. Those guardrails exist for someone else. I can do this in middle school. That's fine. I'll just stop when I'm in high school. Wait, I'm in high school. I still love to do this. Um, I'll stop when I'm in college. You get to college, you do the same thing. Realize you can't stop. And then you get to be age 30. You wake up one day and say, man, how did I get here? It's because you slowly drifted off the path. And there was no guardrail to stop you. The guardrails exist for young and old, but specifically the young, to protect you from slowly getting off the path or all at once in horrible fashion. And so um, there's a popular phrase I love, which says you don't need guardrails until you do. You ever think about that? You don't need guardrails until you do. You don't think about guardrails. You look at guardrails, you're like, that's for someone else who doesn't know how to drive. That's for someone else who doesn't have the reaction time that I have. That's for someone else who's a bad driver those guardrails don't exist for me, right? That's for someone else. And the older you get, the more gray hair that you get, which I've definitely got some now. My uh, wife points that out frequently. Um, and also, every time I get a haircut, they have the audacity to just shave my head and just let the hair fall on my lap, showing me all the gray hairs. Like, how dare they? There should be a whole service dedicated to someone sweeping the hair off before you have to look at it, if you're in your middle-aged person. Anyway, um, but what is it? 
It's a guardrail. It got, the guardrails are not, the older you get, the more you realize someone gets burned by sin every time. Someone gets burned by it. If it's not you, then it's someone else. But chances are it's you and someone else. The Bible exists. God's word, he's given us his word to protect us and keep us on the right path. I took way too long on that one. Let's continue. The next one is a friend, a companion. What is the Bible? It is a friend. It is a companion. Some of yours might say a counselor, um, and I'll tell you why I like companion just a little bit better. Uh, some of your translations say that one. Uh, verse 24, your statutes are my delight. They are my companion or counselors, some of your translation may say. It is a word for someone that you go to in time of need and help to get wisdom from, to get guidance from. So counselor, companion, they both work really well in that situation. Um, I love this because when it comes to a companion, when it comes to a companion, I mean, what, what is a companion? I love you and God's word is that. Some of you are married and you have a really good idea of what a companion is. Someone that's there all the time, someone you can vent to, someone you can feel, feel validated for your emotions, right? Um, someone who's there when you need them, someone who will hopefully tell you the truth even when you don't wanna believe it and even when you don't see it. It's someone who's going to guide you, someone who's going to protect you, and they're gonna tell you what you need to hear and not what you wanna hear. That's what a good companion does. Some of you aren't married, but you have a really good friend or you've had a good friend in the past and they've been that person, right? Some of you, and you've got buddies at work. We all have different ways. Some of you, you don't have any of that, but you got a dog, right? Great companion, always there, always ready for you, always ready to lick you and get you muddy and bark at you and stuff. I don't really care for dogs. Some of you have like hamsters. That doesn't count. My daughter desperately wants a um, hedgehog. Also doesn't count. Uh, but what is a companion? A companion does all those things. They're always with you. And God's word for us is like a companion. It's always there for us to see, to read. When we need to vent, we go to the Bible, not another person. A lot of times, this is, this is Christian gossip. We will go to other people to feel validated because someone else hurt us, and I want to make sure that my feelings are validated, so I'm going to tell you about it. That's Christian gossip. That's how it works. We're called to go to the Bible for those things. God's word will direct us. You want to feel validated or invalidated? Go to the Bible. God's word for you. That will tell you the truth whether you want to hear it or not. This is what God's word does. Um, your phone is a really good way to think about a companion. Uh, it's always with you. It never leaves your sight. When it's not there, you get nervous, right? And you're like, where is it? Um, if you have a question, right? How do I build cabinets? Right here, right? It's my companion. It's a, when I'm feeling lonely, just pop on social media and feel like I know what's going on, feel like I'm in everybody else's life or I can text someone, right? This is, this is a good companion. This is the closest thing I think many of us have to a really good companion, and yet it doesn't talk to us. And yet it's nothing. The Bible is described as living and active, cutting to the heart, revealing to us who we truly are and who we really are. God's word is one of the greatest companions that you could possibly have. I was recently um, reminded of a story of one of, a, one of our college students who, um, man, they were in a great depression, as they said. Those were their words. I was in a great depression. Um, I couldn't see this world with me still in it in the future. Uh, and they began to believe some lies, uh, some lies uh, from Satan and basically wanted to end it all. Luckily, they had a companion. And luckily, they had someone who cared for them. That in their moment of need, when their mind was lying to them, when they were believing lies, they had a friend who was able to remind them of the truth, who stayed overnight with this person, who cared for this person, who drugged this person to Jesus. And then through that person's companionship, they were able to see the lies and eventually put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it's a beautiful story of what a companion does. What does a companion do? A companion saves us from ourselves. That's what a good companion does. This is what God's word to us does. It saves us from ourselves. It's the greatest companion that you could have. It reminds you of true things even when you don't want to hear them. It exposes the lies that our culture has for you in this life. It is a great companion. 
The third thing is a lamp. Third one is a lamp. I wanted to do honey. Kevin didn't want to do honey. So lamp, but it's still really good. I promise. Um, a lamp. Verse 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. And I love this phrase in uh, verse 130. The unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. That word to the simple could also be translated as fools. It can be translated as people don't know anything. It can be translated as um, immature. It can be translated as all those things. What does the Bible do? No matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, no matter how immature you are, no matter how foolish you are, if you listen to the Bible, you can become wise. You can become wise. I was not the smartest guy in my classes. I was not very studious. I did, I did not live in a very wise way in my youth. I really did not. But man, as I began to see the Bible and as it unfolded in front of me, I started to see the wisdom that was in it. And I started to live in a way that was wise, even though this wasn't all there. I started to live in a way that was so different and so much better than everyone else that it became as if I was wise because I knew the truth. And I knew what it was. And I love this idea of unfolding, right? Because so often we want to know everything. We want the Bible to show us that. We want Bible to be Google for us. We want it to tell us all the answers, exactly what is to come. But this idea of unfolding, it shows us one step at a time. The Bible, God's word, can illuminate your path. It is a lamp to your feet. People want the Bible to be the sun, right? You want it to be the sun. You want it to be the thing that that shows everything. I want to see every turn in the road. I want to see every fork. I want to see every guardrail. I want to see everything. I want to see every pothole. I want to see every deer. I want to see the future. I want to see the end. I want to know everything in this life. I want to know when I'm going to retire. I want to know how my kids are going to be when they grow up. I want to know if I'm going to have enough money in my retirement. I want to know when I'm going to get married. I want to know if I should, when, when am I even going to start dating someone? I want to know what my major should be. I want to know when I'm going to graduate. I want to know when I'm going to get a house. I want to know how many kids I'm going to have. And we want to know all these things. We're like, what's God's will for my life? But the Bible doesn't show us the whole picture, does it? What does it show us? It shows us a lamp for your feet. A lamp for your feet. Doesn't sound very powerful. Doesn't sound very illuminating. What is God promising here? He's promising to show you the next step. He's promising to show you the next step. My kids love nightlights, as most of your kids probably do. We have this awesome, like, glowing unicorn in our bathroom. It's fantastic. And uh, it's not very bright. Like, if I brought it here, I don't even know if you'd be able to see if the light was on. But in that little bathroom, it shows you exactly what you need, where the toilet paper is, right? Where the toilet is. It shows you just what you need to take the next step. My son Noah has gotten to the point where he despises anything on his floor because when he wakes up in his sleepy stupor, if he doesn't know exactly where the door is and can't see it and he steps on a Lego or steps on a toy or gets caught up in a blanket, I don't know what happens in his room at night, but he just can't figure it out. He gets upset. He starts yelling and screaming and then he pees on himself in the middle of the night. He's not in here. I can say that. This is what he does. He hates not having light. So he needs a nightlight and he clears a path in his bedroom so that he can have a clear path to get to where he needs to go so he doesn't pee on himself in the middle of the night and so that we don't have to wake up. It's fantastic. This is what the Bible offers us. It offers us this path, this next step for our feet. It's what it offers us. All right, I'm gonna do this fun thing. Everybody's got this, um, everybody's got this flashlight on their phone here. You can turn the lights off real quick. This is always fun for pastors to do. All right, so if I hold this up here, I can't see any of your faces. Like this does not illuminate any of you. There's someone wearing like glasses back there. There's a cool effect happening. Oh, looks like you got goggles on. Night vision. Like really, I don't know what it is. Um, it didn't happen last service. The sunglasses on your head. That's what it is. All right. Um, I can't see any of you in here, right? But what can I see with this little thing? I can see right where my feet are and I can see the next step. I can go over here and I can see there are some wires over here I should avoid and I shouldn't step on. And then um, I'll go over here, more wires. And, um, and over here, I see the um, music sheets uh, because they uh, didn't memorize it apparently. Um, so <laughs> um, 
but I can't see everything, but what can I see? I can see the next step. This is what the Bible does. It illuminates the next step in our lives. It's not gonna tell us everything, but it will show us the potholes. It'll show the deer. It'll show us the guardrails. And it tells us the next step that we should take. You can turn the lights back on. That's what it does. It doesn't promise everything. It'll promise you the next thing. And I love it, it's the unfolding. Do you remember when you were a kid and you were like, how many times can I fold this sheet of paper? You never got past seven because it's impossible for human fingers, right? It's actually Mythbusters had to use a steamroller to get eight, it's crazy. Um, but what did you do? Every time you unfold it, and then when you were a kid, you made, the, you made these, uh, these paper things, you know what I'm talking about? The ones that like fortune teller things, you know what I'm talking about? This, does this motion tell y'all anything? You know, okay, you know what I'm talking about. And like, you would ask it a question, and then you'd open it, and then what would it would say? You'd ask it like, um, uh, am I gonna get married one day? And they would pop open and be like, you have a test today. And I'm like, no, that's not what I asked. Because as kids, we didn't understand what fortune teller things did, um, which, is, which is real fun. But every time you unfolded it, what did you, you saw new information. Every time you unfolded a sheet of paper that you passed in class to someone else, um, you would figure out some new information. Every time you open it, a new information. And I love this idea. Every step we take, every chapter of the Bible we read, every verse, every book of the Bible is just unfolding and getting new information. So many people want to know everything right now. You can't and you won't. But it will give you the next step. And as your life unfolds, and as you continue to learn more about the Bible, it will be a lamp to your feet. If you let it. Um... Those are the three things that the Bible is. And I'm already short on time, that's fine. What the Bible does. So now we know what the Bible is. How does the psalmist describe what the Bible does in our lives? Number one, it gives life. It gives life. Verse 37, turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. This is the most repeated phrase in the Psalm, preserve my life. I don't, I didn't understand what that meant. I hear it all the time, I'm like, okay, I won't die, that's good, but it means so much more than that. It's mentioned in verse 30, 25, 37, 40, 50, 88, and 93. Preserve my life. God, your word preserves my life. What does that mean? It has a few different meanings. One, it means to literally give life, to give life. It could also mean to quicken life. To quicken life is to jumpstart it, for it to get exciting, for it to continue to go, for it to be excited to move. And the last one, it could mean to revive my life, revive it, to bring it back from the dead, to revive your life. So we have to give life, to preserve life, to revive my life, and to quicken my life. So how does God's word do this? How does that happen? Well, the first thing we see is through eternal life. Eternal life. How does the Bible word, how does God's word give life? First, through eternal life. John 3, 16. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. For those who believe in the words of the Bible, that Jesus paid our price that we deserve to pay when he died on that cross. When that happened, Man, he gave us an opportunity for all of our debt to be paid in that moment. And anyone who believes in him and that he saved us, that he can save us and we can't save ourselves, those people are the ones who receive eternal life. In other words, we don't have to die. But the gospel, the good news, preserves our life. What does preserve mean? To preserve is like putting salt on something. It keeps it good for longer and fresh for longer. And those who put their trust in the words of the Bible, the gospel, the good news, they get to live forever, preserved forever. And we don't have to die in that way. It preserves our life for those that believe it. And then it also offers a full life or an abundant life. John 10, 10, for the thief comes only to steal, kill, destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, to have it abundantly. So often people think that the abundant life is to not follow God's rules. So often they think that I want to be free to do whatever I want. I don't need these guardrails. I had this conversation with young people all 
the time. They want the freedom to be able to drive on whatever road they want, whenever they want, not thinking about the guardrails, not caring about where they go, off the path or not, and it doesn't matter. But when we go back to those two pictures, I want you to picture them in your mind. Which one is more free? Which one's more free? The one where there's a guardrail and you can spend more time enjoying the scenery, knowing that there's a fail safe, knowing that there's something protecting you to get off the path? Or hard scrabble pass, where you have a whole lot more freedom. There's a whole lot more risk involved as well. One of those roads leads to more anxiety, fear, potentially hopelessness, and destruction. And one of those leads to freedom and to be able to enjoy all that creation has to offer. Which one sounds more free? Which one is more life-giving? It sure is not hard scrabble pass. Unless adrenaline is what is life-giving, it's not hard scrabble pass. It's one with the guardrails. And Jesus says, I've come to give life, full life. And it's not just a bunch of rules. It's protection. It's freedom from guilt. It's freedom from shame. It's freedom from that anxiety of always being worried. It's freedom from fear. And it's a full, abundant life. And we can find it in God's word, which is a beautiful thing. And then the last aspect of um, what the Bible does in life is that it, is, it gives a guilt-free life. A guilt-free life. Psalm 32, three through five says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. It sounds a lot like a little bit of death every single day. Waking up, going through life, doing the same thing again and again, falling into sin, and when he kept silent, his bones wasted away through the groaning all day long, slowly dying for day and night. Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was zapped as in the heat of summer. We know that well in South Louisiana. The moment you go outside, you're just like, I don't want to do anything. You get in that car and you just melt into your seat. You know that feeling. It's a terrible feeling. Or really good if you're in a cold room like this sometimes. It feels good for about three seconds and then you're done with it. But then what? Verse five, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my evil, my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my sin to the Lord and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. God's word offers a guilt-free life. We go through this life all the time, filled with guilt and shame of the things we've done in the past. All the while, Jesus offers forgiveness and freedom from guilt. That is a beautiful promise that all of you have access to. If we stop working, if we stop thinking we can do it ourselves, stop trying to do it ourselves and trust that God can truly save us and we can't do enough good things to get rid of our guilt, only Jesus can do that through his death and resurrection on the cross. And that's it. And when you stop and you realize what he has done on that cross, it frees you from guilt and shame. It doesn't validate your sin and it doesn't make it okay, but it frees you from the guilt of it. And the word of God, what it does for us is it offers us a guilt-free life, not to continue to sin, but freedom from guilt and shame from our past sin. What a beautiful truth that is. And I love it. Living in guilt over past sin you have committed is to reject the result of what Jesus did on the cross. Living in guilt over your past sin that you've committed is to reject the result of Jesus has done in your life. For those of you that have put your life in Jesus' hands and put your trust in him. I need to keep going. <laughs> the second thing that the Bible does, first it gives life, the second it gives direction Verse 133, direct my footsteps according to your word and let no sin rule over me. Not only does it give light to the path we're on, not only does God's word show us the guardrails of where we should not go off the path, but it shows us the direction. When there's a fork in the road, when there's something where we don't understand what the future has for us, it gives us the direction. Um, how many people's favorite app is the Waze app? Waze, we got any Waze users in here? 
All right, seems like it's the younger crowd. Okay, uh, my favorite thing about the Waze app is that it shows you where the police officers are. Let's all be honest. Let's all be honest. And I know that sounds bad for a pastor to say up here. I'm not trying to justify speeding or anything like that. I promise. Um, but here's what it does do. I see their traps they have let for me, right? They have, they have set traps for me and they want me to fall into their traps. And I say, nah, I've got a trap for you, police officer. I know where you are. Everybody has told me where you are. I know exactly where you're hiding and I am not going to speed at that moment or ever, right? because we don't do that. But even on accident, I'm not going to speed, right? It's not going to happen because I know there you are setting your trap for me. And this is what the Bible does. It shows us, it doesn't give us everything, but the Waze app and all these apps, they show us the next turn. They only show us the next turn. The Bible will show us how to do these things well. So often we're like, man, am I going to get married? How am I going to do this? What job am I going to get? And should I get a house? Should I not get a house? Should I do this? Should I retire at this time? Should, what are my kids going to be? No, the Bible doesn't tell you all those things. It tells you how to do them well in a God-honoring way. It doesn't give you the answers, but it shows you how to do it well. It gives you the next direction. It shows you at the end of the day where you're headed. And it says you're gonna get there in five hours, but you know it's only gonna be four and a half by following the law. And that's all. The Bible gives direction for our lives. What else does it do? It gives comfort. Verse 76, may your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant. One of my favorite descriptions of God in the entire Bible is that he is the God of all comfort. Second Corinthians chapter one, he is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our time of need, in all of our troubles. Memorize it, remember it. We go through this life and we think God is not a good God. He's not a God that cares about us. He is a God that will judge us only. He is a just God, don't get me wrong, but that's it and that's how you view God. He is so much more than that. He is the God of all comfort. Have you ever stopped to recognize that in your life? That he is the God of all comfort. No, no matter what your trouble is, whether it is self-inflicted or not, God desires to comfort you. Whether you're living in the consequences of your own sin or someone else's, God desires to comfort you. Whether you have strayed from the path or not, God's desire is to comfort you. Whatever this life has to throw your way, God's desire is to be the God of all comfort who comforts you in all your troubles. Doesn't mean you're free from all the consequences, but God desires you to comfort it in the midst of the storm and comfort you in the midst of the storm. That's a good God. Uh, we had a, a lot of students who just got back from Indonesia and uh, one of the things they studied was the differences between the God Allah and Yahweh and their view of God and our view of God. And one of the biggest differences is that Allah just doesn't seem very good or caring towards his people in many ways. And at any point in time, he could save you or not. And he doesn't care either way. But what we see when we read the Bible is we see a God of comfort, a God of compassion, a God that has given us his written word to direct us as guardrails to help us to experience comfort to know how to play the game, to show us the next step. That's our God. The fourth thing that the Bible does, it declares God's salvation. It declares God's salvation. Verse 41, may your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. I love that term. It faints with longing for your salvation. When was the last time you fainted over anticipation for something? You see, for the, the Jews, it was the fainting over the anticipation of the future Messiah, the one that was going to come to redeem his people, to protect his people, to save his people, to usher in the kingdom of God. That's what it was for. What is the last time you fainted over anticipate for something? I remember um, there's a lot of people on their wedding day. They'll stand up there, they'll lock their knees, they'll do their thing, and they'll just... Peace out, gone, fainted. I remember that day for me, I was standing up there and the anticipation was just building. And you know you're gonna get married, right? Like you know this is gonna be a thing. You know the person's gonna come on the aisle and whatnot, you know people are gonna be there. But it wasn't until the moment I got right on that platform 
and I stood and everybody was there and I'm like, dang, these people are here to watch me get married. Dang, I'm entering in this lifelong covenant no matter what. Dang, here she is right behind that door. Dang, the door open. I mean, it's just everything, just feigning with anticipation. For our second child, we didn't find the gender. We did it old school. Uh, so we were just waiting for the doctor to be like, it's a boy, it's a girl. And the anticipation was just like killing me. It's like, it doesn't matter. My wife's in so much pain. It's like, tell me, is it a boy or a girl? Right? You just kind of feel like, like fainting. she's fainting over the pain. I'm fainting over anticipation on this child. Um, so when was the last time like you were so excited? It could be a new job, a promotion, my kids, it's Disney World or money at all, any type of money. They're just like, wow, power. I, I don't know what it is. But when was the last time you fainted over anticipation? For the Jews, they, it was fainting over the anticipation of the promise of the Messiah in the future. The salvation that that Messiah was going to offer. The deliverance that this person was going to bring. And we, on this side of history, get to know that that person was Jesus Christ the deliverer, the one who is going to save us from ourselves, the one who is going to deliver us, the one that was going to take us out of slavery and bondage to sin and shame and guilt. That person was Jesus. And he died on the cross to free us from all those things. And he was the promised Messiah. He was the promised salvation. They were fainting, fainting over anticipation of that Messiah, that salvation. And yet we get to see it now. And all of the Bible, God's spoken and written word, it shows us, what does it do? It declares God's salvation for you, for me, for anybody that's willing to accept it, for anybody that's willing to recognize that you cannot save yourself, no matter how many good things you do, and you have to trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross to save you. And that's it. There's nothing else we can do. So what must we do with the Bible? What must we do with the Bible? A uh, band can go ahead and come up. I have gone way too long on many of these things. What must we now do with the Bible? What does the psalmist say? The first thing, study it. Verse 12, praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. I am, I am your student. You teach me. I am your Padawan for these Star Wars character fans in here. Um, I'm your Padawan. Um, I want you to train me. I want to learn. I want to study it. And I haven't had time to do this in all three services. And so I just have to run through it. But there are eight words in this chapter that it uses mainly to describe the word of God. Eight. And all eight of them mean something slightly different. And a lot of times we just say they're all synonyms and we think they're the same thing. But when you actually study them and see the nuances of the differences, it changes how you view these words. So here are the eight words. First one is law. The second one is word. Third one is judgments. The fourth one is testimonies. The fifth one is commandments. Six is statutes. Seven is precepts. And I never knew the difference between statutes and precepts. Those words just don't make sense in my mind. And so studying them was so great. And then the eighth one is word again, or many times promises. Promises of the Lord, his spoken and written word. And each one of those words in Hebrew means something different. And it changes how you view the entire verse every time you recognize, wait, this is what he's saying about this one word. This is how he's talking about a lamp. This is how he's talking about it giving life. And it just changes your perspective on all of them. But study it. You can study it. The next thing, memorize it. Verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you everyone's brain real estate is taken up by something. Everyone's. It could be a, a football team roster, right? Some of you, you know. Uh, baseball statistics, you also know. It could be all the Kardashians and their birthdays. I don't know why anybody would want to know that. But some of you do. Uh, it could be a boy or a girl that you're interested in. Right? It could be your kids, your schedule, your job. Something is taking up your mental real estate at all times. It could be movie quotes. One of my staff members was pointing out how guys have this uncanny ability to just memorize things that don't matter in movies. My son does this already. He'll pull things out of thin air and just say them in the middle of conversation, in context. I'm like, why do you know that? How do you know that? Why do you even remember that line? But he does. I don't know why it happens, but what is taking up your mental real estate? And my hope for all of us, me included, as we continue to go through Psalms, is that we start to let the word of God be the thing that fills up our mental real estate and our brain. The thing that we care about memorizing more than we do stats of your favorite quarterback. 
easier said than done. The third thing that we must do with the Bible is meditate on it, meditate on it. Verse 48, I reach out for your commands, which I love that I might meditate on your decrees, that I might meditate on your decrees. Uh, there's a difference between Eastern meditation and Western meditation, very important. There's a difference in how many other religions talk about meditation versus how Christians talk about meditation. In many Eastern religions, meditation is emptying your mind, clearing your mind of all fear, anxiety, clearing your mind of any desire, anything at all, and just being nothing and being one with nothing. And that's the idea. In Christianity, the idea of meditate is the exact opposite. It is to fill your mind with the things of God, to fill your mind with good, with what is beautiful, what, what, with what is lovely, with what is pure. It's to fill it, not to empty it, but to fill it with things of God. Kevin, in his notes, used the word uh, marinate. Uh, not my favorite word to use when studying scripture. I just, I, I picture a big messy Bible, but that's fine. Uh, if marinating is the best way for you to view it, here's the concept I want to get across. You want to be in the word, yes, but even more importantly, you want the word to get into you. You want to get into the word, but more importantly, you want the word to get into you and you want it to change you from the inside out. The author of Hebrews says it this way, it cuts to the heart, dividing both bone and marrow. It will reveal to you who you are. We talked about a counselor earlier. One of my favorite things about a counselor or a companion, the more time you spend with them, is the more time they get to know you, you get to know them, and the more time you know yourself. The more time you spend with a counselor, the more you find more about yourself. And those of you that go to counseling, you know that to be true. The more time you spend with the Lord, the more time you meditate in it, the more you will learn more about yourself and God. And then last but not least, to obey it. To obey it. The first eight verses of Psalm 119. It's all about obeying it. I love how it starts with obedience and it doesn't end with it. So often preachers, what we'll say is, here's all the reason you should be obedient. Now be obedient, right? Here's everything and here's why you should listen to it. Now be obedient. And the psalmist in this one starts with obedience. It starts with the presupposition that God knows what's best for you, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you understand the reason or not. Gen Z cares more about whether or not something works than whether or not it's true. Something in my studies I was, that's something that's very popular now is they care more about whether something works than whether or not it's true. And yet the biblical author here doesn't go through the list of reasons why it works first. It starts with obedience and then it tells you all the reason why it, reasons why it works. It's slightly different, but it's important. We don't study the Bible to pass a test. You're not gonna get to the pearly gates one day and Jesus, God's going to be like, um, so who are my two half-brothers? Um, uh, so who was the one that talked to a donkey? Um, can you list all of the books of the Bible in order, please? And you can't use song form. Song form doesn't count. You need to just know them. Some of you know the song. That was funny to you. Um, uh, it's not going to be, hey, what were the eight Hebrew words that I used to describe my written and spoken word in Psalm 119? It's, that's not why we study the word. We study in a different way. I want you to think like a, a baseball player studies a pitcher. When you've got a big game coming up and you've got a pitcher that you know is going to be on that mound, what do you do? You watch as much footage of that person as you can. Because sometimes they have tells. This just happened recently where there was a pitcher who had a tell who would stare at third base longer on an off-speed pitch than a fastball. And if you study that pitcher well enough, man, you're just going to do what that team did and they hit like three home runs on them. That's what you're gonna find out. It's studying it in that way. It's not studying it to pass a test. It's studying it so that when you get into the game, man, you can honor the game the most. And that you can be what you were created to be. You can follow the rules. You can be a part of the game. You can be a part of everything better in that way. Uh, Tony Dungy, the football coach of the Colts, Indianapolis Colts, uh, Colts many years ago um, he wrote his book and he talked about one of the things that he trained his offensive or uh, defensive linemen to do he taught them how to study the first footstep of the offensive linemen and he says if they step back with their left foot first on this side that means it's going to be a pass play if you see them shuffle their feet like this that means they're probably uh, it's probably going to be a run and they're going to be trying to push you left or right 
And he was able to hyper analyze and study those little tiny foot movements so that when the game happened, they had this competitive advantage in the game. And so they could be the best. God desires for us to study it so that when it comes time to be in this game we call life, man, we could do it in the best way possible. We can honor him. We can live out the purpose of what he's created us to do the best. That's what he desires for us. And as the rain starts, that's a perfect time to say, let's pray. God, um, thank you for being a compassionate, loving God who did not leave us to fend for ourselves and figure this life out by ourselves, but thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your guidance. Thank you for counseling us. Thank you for comforting us. Lord, I pray for the Christians in this room that they can leave this room and experience the full life that you have for us both now and for eternity in the future to have the abundant life that is free from the anxiety and worry of a life with no guardrails. But Lord, you guide our path. You've given us your word to know the next step, to know that we can take the next step with confidence, no matter what it is, because you guide us that way through your word. Lord, I pray for anybody in here that does not know you. Lord, that they can read your word and they can see and taste that it is good and that you are good that you care for us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross so that we may be made alive, so that we could be freed from our slavery to sin. So Lord, I pray for those people that today would be the day that they see you as a good shepherd, one that cares for his sheep, not as just this king on a throne who doesn't care about his subjects, but as a good shepherd, as someone who protects us, who feeds us, who guides us, protects us. I pray that they see you that way today and say yes to the free gift of salvation, freedom from guilt that you offered us in Christ through his death and resurrection. Lord, help us to continue to live out your commands, your statutes, your precepts, and be obedient, even if we don't understand, no matter what this life has to throw at us. Amen. You guys can stand up. Let's worship. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.